This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I am Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project based at the University of Connecticut, which explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Elaine Landemore. Elaine is Associate Professor in the Political Science Department at Yale University. She works primarily in democratic theory and is particularly interested in collective wisdom, That is, she works on the conditions under which large groups of non-experts can outperform experts. In her recent book, which is titled Democratic Reason, published by Princeton University Press in 2013, Elaine makes the case that a properly designed democracy harnesses the collective intelligence of the people, and that makes democracy smart. Elaine is currently completing a new book about what she calls open democracy, and this book specifies the institutional design of a smart democracy. Hello, Elaine. Hello, Bob. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. Well, thanks for joining me on the Why We Argue podcast. Um, So let's get to it. Um, As you know, and I suspect as many listeners will know, at least since Plato, Democracy has been criticized on the grounds that it places political power in the hands of the foolish many. And this classical objection has gained some traction of late, or maybe some uh, new traction of late. There are many who think that contemporary democracies have been making unwise decisions. Now, Elaine, you've defended democracy, uh, in theory at least, on the grounds that it can be wise. That is, you've tried to take on the platonic objection straightforwardly. So let's begin there. Um, can you explain our view, uh, explain your view rather, about the wisdom of democratic groups? Right. So so, so in my work, I look at a sort of a idealized version of uh, democracy, uh, uh, the model of uh, democracy, um, where democracy is defined as an inclusive decision procedure, right? And the main argument basically is to say that um, to the extent that we make decisions through deliberation, and deliberation is a way for us to solve collective problems and try to figure out the best answer to our collective problems, the more people we include in that conversation, that exchange of arguments, uh, the more likely we are to figure out the truth or the best arguments or the relevant information and ultimately do what's best for the community. So that's that's an argument from, um, from 
from numbers in, in a way because numbers serve, serve as a proxy for, for the cognitive diversity that's needed to solve problems. And the more people you include, uh, the more you tap this cognitive diversity that's spread across the entirety of the of the citizen body. And by contrast, when you when you restrict decision making about the common good to uh, a small number of people, generally a socioeconomic elite of people uh, trained in the same schools um, with the same sort of uh, uh, life experience, uh, you you considerably uh, restrict the diversity of, of of input, of perspectives, of uh, approaches to a given problem, and and you. Uh, you are less likely uh, ex ante and on the long term to sort of make the the right decision. So that, that's the sort of argument. And it's not it's not only a, um, am I right in thinking that it's not only an argument about numbers. It's also an argument about, uh, as you were just suggesting, um, cognitive diversity. That's correct. But I, I say numbers because for me, um, including everyone is the sort of easiest, cheapest way to get at the cognitive diversity that's. That's characteristic of a large group. You, and and, and the, the why it's cheaper is because you could also try to oversample cognitive minorities along lines that seem relevant for, for a given set of issues. But it's much harder to do, and, and in part because we don't know what the problems are going to be. Uh, it could be economic crisis. It could be an environmental crisis. It could be the issue of um, the, the, you know the, the losers of globalization. And so, for all these these questions as a package, you cannot know in advance who will have the right answers. And you need the perspective of everyone, students, you know, that are uh, saddled with uh, debts and, and uh, the, you need the perspective, of course, of, of experts and, and economists, but you also need a diversity of views on the problem from, from all possible angles. That's the only way to get at the full picture of the, of the problem you are dealing with, in my view. Right. So then it seems that um, if democratic, if some given democratic societies um, practices are aimed at further segregating cognitive resources, um, then, uh, and by, by that I mean um, a, a, a news and political environment in which um, uh, citizens are increasingly encouraged to silo off into um, more homogeneous groupings um, and to discuss political matters with people who are increasingly um, more like themselves, then this, I I take it on your view, would be something very, very bad. Yes, it's very bad. It's it's a problem of these bubbles, these silos that that cause us to ignore an entire... Uh, you know, aspect of reality, and I think that that's what happened to to the left in this country. I think they uh, they completely missed um, the, the 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 question that that sort of uh, well, the central worry of the of the of the Trump electorate, for example, um, the, the losers of globalization. But that was actually true of the of the sort of elite left and elite right. In a way, uh, Trump came as a as an outsider that brought to the fore this question that was ignored by both parties. Because both parties was, were very committed to globalization and its benefits, and it's, it's sort of net benefits, but nobody was paying attention to a, a question that was the question of a minority whose views were not represented in the media, whose views were not aired at all. So they were not part of the conversation, and that was that, that's part of the reason why we all of us got so surprised. Good. And you might say the same thing with Brexit, right? That the 
there was a sort of consensus on the left and, and partly on the right, uh, certain right, that more globalization was better, you know, more free trade is always better on average, and, and, it, and that, that, that's a view that couldn't be questioned. And, and after those election results and, and, and this referendum, now we are, we're realizing we should have discussed those questions. So what do you think right so what do you think about um what what measures can we take it's it's often thought that um the kind of diversity that you're arguing democracy needs in order to wisely address its problems it's often thought that that diversity is um, something to be tolerated or something to be begrud- begrudgingly accepted, um, that everyone uh, has a place uh, in the conversation or everyone has a right to share his or her experience or raise his or her concerns, is frequently seen as something that um, we owe to other people, um, uh, but um, uh we 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 tolerate those those other voices merely as a uh, as 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 a way of, of of treating treating them well. Uh, your your view is though that we all benefit from cognitive diversity. How can we foster that? Or do you have any ideas about how we can change our practice? Ah, uh, well, it would it demands a lot of changes. I think it demands to change our our partly our understanding of what democracy is about. It also demands. Um, uh, trying to understand how, how deliberation works because my view is that deliberation is a sort of technology really and that we, we barely know how to handle it and for a while we thought that the point was to get to a consensus for example so we probably overemphasized the the necessity of converging on a, on a common conclusion uh, which had I think you know has bad effects in terms of stifling dissent and and as you say we tolerate dissent because we you know out of respect for participants but i think it's 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 a very important reason but it's it's even more um to me it's it's even deeper than that meaning it's it's instrumentally vital to the quality of the conclusions we're likely to reach as a group we need dissenters and we need um a plurality of, of views and conflicting views and what I call, what, I, what I, my co-author and I, Scott Page and I, call positive dissensus, right? Like things that are actually constructively contributing to the group reaching better conclusions. Um, and uh, it, it demands, you know, I think there's a lot more research to be done about the conditions under which uh, deliberation works, uh, whether we need more transparency to outsiders, whether, uh, you know, how, how do we implement a genuine equality between the participants? Does it mean that they need to have the same amount of airtime or does it mean something else? Uh, it, it demands also uh, answering questions about the, the roles, the role of, um, of you know, emotions and, and how do we deal um, with people who are, uh, who, who engage in arguments in a, in a passionate way rather than this uh, rational sort of dispassionate tone that we tend to privilege. Um, so, so there are lots of questions that we don't really uh, know the answer to, and and I think it's for me it's the, the our our the medieval stage at which we are. It, it's well um, represented by by the presidential debates uh, between Hillary Clinton and and Donald Trump in a way. I mean, we expect that putting those two people um, on a stage uh, with the live public is going to yield epistemically satisfying results. And of course, it's not, it's not what happens, because what happens is that they, they basically only speak to their audience. They, they dog whistle to a subset of the public. They, they use 
code words, they evade questions. And so in fact, the amount of information and arguments generated is very low. And, and so I don't think we should organize our public debates that way. I think it's more spectacle than, than, uh, than deliberation to me. Do you think that there's a, a worry that contemporary democracy with all of the new communicative um, abilities that that we have at present, social media, 24-7 uh, news channels, um, the ability to um, uh, you know, tweet uh, at the president or to the president of the country. Um, do you think that there's uh, some danger, uh, as you were just saying, that the, um, the technology has sort of outpaced our understanding of how to harness its democratic potential. Uh, yeah, I actually think that um, I, 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 I'm all for, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all these. I think all these tools are, are amazing if we knew how to use them well, but um, because, they, 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 you know, you, you're, you're able to put out thoughts that you would lose otherwise and they're there forever and they can be reused and, and documented. And, and so it's very useful. It's like we're we we're basically putting outside in the world our, our brains really and, and all the thoughts that are that are produced on a on a on a daily basis on a minute per minute basis but on the other hand how do we make sure there's an actual conversation between all those thoughts rather than just uh you know uh, what, what we call enclave deliberation among like-minded people which lead to more polarization and and less understanding of what's really happening in the world so i i yes i think that it's uh, so far technology has outpaced our understanding of what's needed to 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 conduct good deliberation. I mean, although it's not entirely true, we we do have some theories about what makes for good deliberation. It's just that it's not implemented. Um, I, I just you know it, there there are some experiments here and there and mini publics and citizens assemblies, but they're still it's still at a very experimental level and it's not been given as much visibility uh, at least in the media and and, and at, at at the level of national government, as probably they should have. Been. So you're you're that's very helpful because you know sometimes when um, when a political philosopher uh, says something so bold as you know democracies can be wise and the group you know of non-experts can outperform the experts, sometimes that's heard as a very optimistic view about actual existing democratic. Uh, practices. Um, and uh, we're now, uh, as you're describing it, we're now seeing that um, uh, your view is is about uh, a, a perhaps implementable ideal. It's not a vindication of um, actual, um, actual democracies. Yes, that's right. I think it's, um, you know, my view is probably that I, I'm not sure we've, we've seen a real de democracy since uh, ancient Athens, bracketing the you know, exclusionary aspects of that ancient democracy, uh, you know, the, the fact that women and metics and slaves were excluded, but, but they, they, it was truly a democracy based on deliberation and the rule of ordinary citizens. People were exercising power on a daily basis. Uh, they were not just consenting to power every four years. So I feel like, indeed, I mean, I, I, I make predictions about the wisdom of a democracy, but the, the, the democracy I have in mind would look very different from, from the ones we know. The, the, the systems we call democracies, but that are, in fact, um, you know, electoral oligarchies or representative governments, however you want to call them, but the, 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 the regimes in which ordinary citizens consent to power, but do not really exercise it. 
And I think if ordinary citizens were to exercise power again, not in the direct ways of ancient democracy, but in more mediated ways, and, and were given a say, uh, you know, upstream of all the decisions, uh, midstream, downstream, at, at many different levels, I think we would see very different results. But, you know, it's a, it's a theory. Right. So let's turn then to um, some of the, the more recent work that you've been doing. So I uh, know from uh, just following following your work that you've been very interested in some experiments um, with democracy and constitution making uh, in Iceland. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your interest in that? And maybe just tell us a little bit about what, what, what's happened in Iceland. Right. So, so Iceland is um, is a good example of uh, of what I'm now calling uh, open democracy, a sort of emerging form of uh, of actual democracy that looks more like what I have in mind when I talk about democracy. And what happened there? It, it, it's um, in 2008 uh, the, the country collapsed. Uh, they they burned seven times their GDP. Uh, they, they had a, a so-called um, pots and pans revolution where they, they kicked out their sitting parliament. Um, and then they decided that they would uh, write a new constitution for the country. And, and they did so in a very unprecedented way. They decided that it would be maximally inclusive. So first, the first the, the, the three sort of characteristics that made this process uh, unprecedented, in my view, is that they had first upstream of the process, a national forum of about a thousand people that were randomly selected from the larger population that were given the, the task to define the values and principles that were going to go into the text, into the constitutional text. So they did that. Uh, then uh, the second step was the election of an assembly of drafters. So they chose uh, 25 uh, drafters from a pool of about 500 people that were themselves a pool that excluded professional politicians. So the goal was to empower ordinary citizens. And the third aspect of that process that to me was really uh, radically new is that those 25, instead of locking themselves up in a room and writing in secrecy this new social contract, they in fact decided to use the social media and the new digital tools to open up the process to the larger public. So they, they put online 12 drafts at various stages of completion, and they integrated the feedback of the people who participated. So those three aspects, I think, are, are extremely new, and, and they correspond to this idea of empowering ordinary citizens, giving them a say, not just at the end when it's too late to change anything, but really uh, early on in the process, at the very beginning, and in fact, throughout. So it's, it's democracy at the beginning, democracy at the end, democracy throughout, democracy kind of always. Um, and... Uh, of course, this experiment has, has its limitations. It wasn't conclusive in the end. The parliament, you know, just decided not to vote on the constitutional proposal, etc. And and it's you know it's a small country and and uh, not a great number of people participated in the crowdsourcing phase. But still, it's it's a sort of first experiment in a more genuinely democratic and open form of. Uh, of decision making on on something that seems very fundamental and usually left to experts, namely constitution making. So this gives me hope that um, we could do something similar for ordinary legislation, for for perhaps all sorts of policy making uh, decisions, uh, meaning involving people earlier in the process, throughout the process, and and via these new forms of participation like uh, random selection or crowdsourcing.
So that's what happened. Can you? Why did the why did the Icelandic Parliament um, not not bring the the constitutional revisions to a vote? So there are multiple, you know, interpretations of, uh, of what happened. One is that uh, the the Parliament at the time when it received this new um, this new constitutional proposal had vested interests against the content. Um, for example, one of the very controversial article of that constitution was Article 34, which which nationalized um, uh, all uh, natural resources that were not already privately owned. So basically, it was a lot of fishing grounds. And that was, of course, uh, very, uh, I mean, th- this was not to the benefit of the sort of oligarchs of Iceland who made a lot of money in the 80s and 90s uh, exploiting those natural resources for free. So they were not willing to let go of that sort of, you know, advantage. And so I, that's one reason that's been advanced. Other people say, well, it's just that, you know, at that point, the crisis had um, been sort of uh, had, had faded in the background. The, the economy was back to normal. So people didn't see the point of changing the constitution so much. Um, there had been some procedural issues during the the, the, the constitutional process. For example, the, the, the Supreme Court had struck down the, the elections to the constitutional assembly. So basically, there were some issues of legitimacy that were played up. And so, you, you know, there are all sorts of reasons. My own take is that it's it's a usual, um, a usual story of... Um, you know, the powers that be that don't really want to relinquish power. It would have demanded of parliament that it's basically committed suicide, uh, be replaced by a new parliament that would have had to approve the new constitutional proposal as well. You know, I, I don't think it proves uh, that the, the process was, was bound to fail. I think it just proved that there are hurdles and that you you need to strategize a little bit about how to convince the, the, the powers that be to to, to let go of power, really. It's, it's not easy. Right. So, uh, the, the, we can't get around politics in a certain sense, maybe. Um, That's the thing, right? So the transition from here to now—it's always the most difficult question. So let, you've been very generous with your time, Elaine. So let me just ask as a final question: um, Given where we just where we just um, got to, um, uh, do you have any any thoughts, uh, any advice, or any thoughts about how we might move forward to? Um, given existing conditions, perhaps especially existing conditions in the United States, to uh, work uh, to more um, fully realize a better democratic ideal? Hmm. Uh, well, so I I trust that there are some, you know, experiments done at the city level across the U.S. You know, the, things things are changing very slowly. But on on a personal individual level, I think it's we need to work on our understanding of what it means to listen to other people and understand them, and and we learn to respect we need to learn to respect you know cognitive diversity and, and differences of opinion. And it's not what I'm seeing on on Facebook or all these other uh, platforms. Actually, I'm sort of reluctant to engage in those debates because all I see is that people who post, you know, opinions and then expect people to chime in in agreement and, and like, you know, and if you don't say something that concurs, then nobody likes you or, or, or you're ignored. or So I, I don't think that's the right attitude. There should be more uh, welcoming of, of dissent and more, uh, you know, less uh, valorization of, of consensus. That's my sense. Well, that sounds like a um, a good 
point uh, on which to end. Um, Elaine, thank you so much for joining me today on the Why We Argue podcast. And thank you, listener, for listening to the podcast, which I will remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at at Public Humility. Thanks, everyone, and bye for now.